Before we start this episode, we would like to warn you that it contains some swearing. So please, clear out the little ones and the easily offended before we begin. Welcome to the Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture. Hi, Dave. Hi. Oh, I tell you. Oh, I have had a terrible night. Oh. What's up? Well, I've been, um, I've just been weeing all night. I've just been urinating like a horse the whole night. Right. Well, thanks for your concern. What, what are you doing there? Uh, I just put a shelf up. What? Why? For our awards. <laughs> yeah, we haven't, we haven't won any awards. Well, no, not yet, but it's just a matter of time. It's a brilliant podcast. Illusion's a wonderful thing. Um, hey, look, you're doing, you're doing it all wrong there. Look, that's... Uh... That, well, look, careful. This is a small studio and a big piece of plank. Ow! And... Oh! Oh! What is it you're doing? Oh, you knocked me down. Yeah, but you've got up again. What? Yeah, I'll never keep me down, but no, I'll tell okay. you what, it's... Look, get away, watch it. Oh! Oh! That's just in the same place. God, that hurts so much. Sorry. Oh! Oh, oh, it's okay. I'm up. I'm up. I'm all right. What you are you doing with that bloody plank? It's just be careful with it. All okay, right? okay. Look, let's try not to swing it and just say, wait, wait. No. Yeah. <sighs> you got knocked down again, didn't you? I yeah. Uh, I'm just gonna climb up the wall. Oh, you've, it's all right. You've, oh. you've got up again. Yeah. Um, yeah. No thanks to you. I don't think anything to keep you down, would it? Oh God. Here's Lance, one of our producers. Oh, hello, Lance. Hi, Lance. Oh, what have you got there? I just noticed there's buckets and buckets of urine outside. Yeah, yeah don't worry about that. Dave's curing might... me of that by hitting yeah. me on the head. I Sorry. you might be a bit dehydrated, so I bought you some drinks. Well, you, you Ooh, know what? Look, that... he's got... Oh, what have you got there? A lager drink? Is that yeah. what? A whiskey drink? You've got a cider drink? Yeah. A vodka drink. <laughs> Excellent. Something to remind you of the good times I felt. Yeah, yeah. why don't we sing songs to remind us of the better times before I got hit over the head a lot? What what, what song can we sing? Um, oh, the pipes. pipes the pipes, pipes are, are calling. calling. Yeah, it, does, it reminds me of no, that. This whole reminds me of that. Reminds what? me of... Um, that's another, actually, it reminds me more of one of our talks that we've got to do. Really? We could use this as a setup for a talk. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Oh, well, of course we've got Dunstan, Dunstan Bruce from, from Chumbawamba. Yeah. I fail to see how any of what's just happened is in any way relevant, Dave. Well, Ow! Here's Dunstan Bruce from Chumbawamba talking about tub thumping. I can't get up. Thank you. So, yeah, I'm Dunstan Bruce, 23 years. I was in uh, a member of the band Chumbawamba. We had one hit song, one song, and it was called Tub Thumping, but you might know it as the I Get Knocked Down song. Please welcome, with the anthem, Tub Thumping, the mighty Chumbawamba! I get knocked down! Okay, that's the song. That was from the Brits in uh, 98, which we'll talk about later. So that song led to this happening. Our next guests are a group of self-described pop anarchists from Leeds, England. Their album is entitled Tub Thumper, and tonight they are making their network television debut. Here they are 
Chamba Wamba. Ze stonden in Engeland op nummer 1 met de Pumping. Hier komt de ploeg van Chumba Wamba. Please welcome Chumba Wamba. It's only Chumba Wamba. Tonight we rumble with literally the hottest singing group in the USA. Chumba Wamba. Chumba Wamba. Chumba Wamba. <laughs> Chumba Wamba. Why it is Chumba Wamba, of course. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Daddy boy. I like a vodka Not bad for a group of self-proclaimed anarchists from the UK. You you had singing anarchists on your show? I did it. I didn't even know what an anarchist was. I had to look it up in the dictionary, and I, I'm still a little confused. I know what an anarchist is. What is I it? just didn't know an anarchist sang. Yeah. Where did you find them? On the Jerry Springer show? <laughs> That was the madness that happens. Yeah, what I'm trying to do in this talk is just give you an idea of where Chumbawamba came from, the fact that we'd existed for 15 years before we even had our 15 minutes. What we then did, once we got into that position as a political uh, band, how you can use that platform for good or evil. So we started in 1982. We were some very, very earnest uh, and uh, serious young uh, politicos. It was all about the power of the message in the songs, and the music was almost just a vehicle for that in those early days. So for 15 years, we were like the sort of this underground phenomenon. We had sort of existed as a band who would tour Europe, you know, do transit van tours all over Europe. We'd be sleeping on people's floors. We'd be arguing about who about class war and anarcho-syndicalism and whose turn it was to do the washing up. It was just one big happy family. And that went on for years and years. And we sort of existed in this sort of in this world. And we did we were doing we were doing quite well for ourselves. But we sort of tried to develop the act that we were doing, the our performance. So we were sort of influenced by a lot of things to do with Dada and Bertolt Brecht, bands like Crass and uh, the Bonzos and Frank Zappa. We were taking all all our influences from bands like that and trying to mix that up with making the performance more of an agitprop theatre sort of cabaret sort of things. So we had like this big falling, but we also had a lot of people who didn't like Chumbawamba. For some reason, we sort of pissed off quite a lot of people. So there was a lot of people in the music industry, and in the music press in particular, who didn't like Chumbawamba. So this is Andrew Mueller, who says, a Chumbawamba are a collection of ludicrous elderly anarchist bores, and are so unutterably ridiculous, I'm amazed anybody takes them at all seriously. David Quantic, they were around for years doing these vaguely embarrassing records that were like your aunt and uncle trying to join in at the party. Emma Morgan, they're just redundant and fake. They're just appalling. This is uh, John Harris, now, who's now a fam quite a famous journalist, I suppose. Ever taken hallucinogenic drugs and wondered what it would be like if Jesus Jones met Steel Eye Spanner at a socialist workers' meeting? No need. Go and see Chumbawamba. End of review. And they're now very famous, Kathleen Moran. They're just an awful, half-sampled, jumpy, shouty tragedy. So as you can see, there was a lot of hatred in the house for, for Chumbawamba. Even people who were sole fans. This is Stephen Wells, the much-missed Stephen Wells. It was weird. It was this, if a left-wing theatre group from the early 70s had crashed into a tank of toxic waste and mutated. Now, this man was a fan of the band. So that was an indication of how difficult it was for us to get people on our side. In 1985, we released our first single, which was a single called Revolution. When we brought this single out, this is really, it seems ridiculous now to believe, but there was a backlash. We were part of this movement called the Anarcho-Punk Movement, which you may or may not have heard of. And it was very, very, very righteous movement. When we brought out a vinyl, seven-inch vinyl single, we were absolutely lambasted for doing so. It was like we'd sold out that we weren't putting everything out still on uh, cassettes. And that was the format that you had to use. We did a gig in Dundee once where we were supported by this band whose name I can't remember, who as part of their act, they brought on the single and they burnt it on stage before we played. They were so outraged that we'd brought a single out. It just seems bizarre now.
Okay, so how did we get from that to having a hit single? At the time, we were on a record label called One Little Indian that was run by an old friend of ours, Derek Burkett. They were so part of that, that London anarcho-punk movement. We had a, a, quite a poor relationship with them because we wanted to do what we wanted to do and they wanted us to do what they wanted us to do. When we took the Tub Thumper album to them, they said, look, this is crap. This isn't good enough. Well, you're going to have to go away and either re-record it. We'll get someone like Langer and Winstanley and to produce it. Langer and Winstanley did stuff like uh, Madness and Elvis Costello and stuff is probably what they're most famous for. We were appalled by this idea. We were like, there's no way we're doing that. No. So we left the record company. So then we had nowhere to put the album out. So we were like, so this man turned up, Jonathan King. Jonathan King at the time, in the late 90s, was a, still a very influential tastemaker within the music scene. He used to do this magazine called The Tip Sheet, where every edition he would have a free CD with the tip sheet, and he loved tub thumping, so he used to put it on as the first track on this CD. So kind of thanks to Jonathan King, we ended up with about six offers of record deals. Jonathan King not only helped us by that. He wrote us this long, this is a long uh, fax that he sent us. Uh, if you think I'd make a good honorary ninth chumba, granddad chumba, then let me join you. That's my real desire, to be that extra member with loads of experience and contacts and love for what you do. You create, I break. So that was Jonathan King's attempt to join the band. We politely refused there through our managers, tell Jonathan thanks, but no thanks. We were wondering what to do. We had this big dilemma. What should we do? Who should we sign to? Which deal was the best deal to sign with? We had this idea that what we'd always tried to do this thing where we tried to push the band further and further into the mainstream. That was sort of like an aim of what we were doing. We thought we had something interesting to say. We thought what we were doing was good and fascinating. And we wanted as many people to hear that as possible. And we'd always sort of lived by this maxim of Stephen Wells, which is if you want to be part of popular culture, you've got to be popular, which sort of made sense to us that we were never going to we were never going to get to the audience we wanted to get to by remaining in this little anarcho-punk ghetto. So we had all these offers and we had to choose one. Now, the most tempting offer we had that gave us the most control was an offer from EMI. Chumbawamba, today I was sad to find out that you are now on EMI. Isn't this extremely hypocritical of you? They're hypocrites above all else, isn't it? You know, they go on about anarchy and they're signed to a major label. EMI was obviously part of Thorn EMI, who had a weapons division, which was something that we'd campaigned against for quite a few years. Also appearing on an album actually called F EMI. So after all these endless discussions, we signed to EMI. So these are the sort of things that happened. Obviously, we were on top of the pops regularly. We had Jeremy Paxman come to interview us for the Sunday Times. Uh, me, Alice, and Damba. That was uh, Alice. Somehow managed to totally charm Jeremy Baxman. So she was on. She was a regular on Newsnight. She was always on Newsnight for some reason. And he loved her. He loved her because she would just say what she wanted to say. So we were playing the song everywhere. The song was in the Rovers' return. It was on in the Queen Vic. Uh, everywhere you would go, you would find the song. We started playing. We started doing all the American chat shows, and we sort of thought, right now we're in this position. We've got this platform that we've never had before. Let's do something with it. Let's not just like go around, you know, like just doing the song. Let's do something of it different with it. So we started changing the words occasionally. In this instance, this is us on the David Letterman show. We were sort of involved in this uh, campaign for uh, a former Black Panther who was uh, on death row called Mumia Abu-Jamal. And we were supporting his campaign for a retrial. So this is what we did on Letterman. Free 
Right, you wouldn't believe the chaos that actually caused. On the, on the thing, though, it's like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We were off going to do a gig in New York that night. We just, like, all left. So there was all these there was phone calls going back and forward for hours and hours. They did eventually broadcast it. We did the same on the Jay Leno show. We, did a, <coughs> we started doing it as a regular thing, changing the words of the song. And also, by the time we got to the Brits, we were changing the words as well. But what we realized then was that we had this platform that you could do uh, and say stuff and people would report on it immediately. You know, you would, you, we had this power. There was this one is, instance where Alice said, she didn't mind if people stole our records. Why should we care if people who can't afford to buy our records go into Virgin or EMI, HMV, and steal our records? Virgin were outraged. So they withdrew all our records off the shelves and had them all hidden under the counter. So if you went in a Virgin at the time, you had to go and ask for it, but I was stupid. We were number two for about three or four weeks. We couldn't get to number one. Men in Black was number one. I was number one for weeks. We were always number two. The week that we got a midweek chart position that we were going to go to number one, Princess Di, really unfortunately for us, died. And that was it. So all songs that had any reference to cars or crashes or accidents, and obviously because I was as I get knocked down, it got pulled from all radio and TV. Anyway, not everybody was happy with what we'd done. And not that we had, to, we had a lot of people, former fans, who were absolutely disgusted by what we'd done. And so uh, some of those former fans put out an EP called Barefaced Hypocrisy Sells Records, the anti-Chumbawamba EP. And this is just a seven-inch vinyl. Um, it was never going to sell loads. It was a, a sort of an independent thing. But what I us usually do in this talk, and I've done this talk in the past, is perform the Oi Polloi song for you, which involves you joining in. I think it's always worth doing. I haven't got a guitar this time, which for you is probably a blessing. You're all going to join in on the chorus, right? So I'll do the verse, then you, then you all join in the chorus. So the chorus is, I'll, I'll do it once. So it's Chumbawamba, 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 your shit. Chumbawamba. Chumbawamba, Chumbawamba, you're fucking shit. Okay? So I do the words. Have you noticed that rock stars always seem to lie so much? Chumbawamba once said they cared, but they never really gave a fuck. Ardent critics of the big business, dirty fingers in dirty pies. All the breweries fund the Tory party, and now they gig for these breweries live. Chumbawamba, Chumbawamba, you're shit. Why is it the rock stars always seem to lie so much? Dan But No Bacon once said he cared, but he really never gave a fuck. Slagged off the music business, they were never going to toe the line. Now roadies carry the gear as they sit backstage sipping wine. Chumbawamba, 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 you're shit. Chumbawamba, 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 you're shit. You must realize that rock stars always seem to lie so much. Alice Nutter once said she cared, but she never really gave a fuck. Come on, baby, do the revolution. The sickening stench of hypocrisy. Just a puppet of the music business. Turning rebellion and into money. Chumbawamba, 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 you're shit. Chumbawamba, 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 you're fucking shit. Thank you. We gave a song for General Motors to use for an advert for this car. It's a Pontiac Grand AMGT, apparently. I, I had no idea, but apparently it is. And what we decided to do was, because we used to get offers all the time, uh, I mean, obviously I have no interest in this, this uh, General Motors or this sort of car, was that we took the money for the advert 
and then we gave the money that we got from the advert to uh, two organizations, one called CorpWatch, who specifically campaigned against companies like General Motors and their bad work practices, and another organization called Indie Media, who, uh, who also publicized similar stuff. So we got in touch with both of those organizations and said, look, we've been offered this advert, we want to give the money to you. So we thought this was a really smart and subversive thing to do with, with the position we were in. Rather than trying to remain pure and not appear in any adverts, we thought this was a smart thing to do. We got press for it, you know, it garnered press, it was in the Guardian Observer. It seemed to be a, a good thing for us to do. So that takes me back to a, a, a quote by David Quantic, um, which, which, which I think is sort of at the nub of a lot of what we were trying to do. So David Quantic said, bands like Chumbawamba are a bit daft really. They spend the last three years moaning about the Labour government and attacking John Prescott with water. During 19 years of Margaret Thatcher, they failed to do anything significant about that. Well, you know, for, those, for those 19 years of Margaret Thatcher, we weren't in a position to garner any uh, you know, media about it. We, was, we were existing in this underground bubble in a way. Once we went mainstream, we suddenly, anything we did, we got report, it got reported. You know, it was in the press. And so that, that sort of seems like a redundant thing to say to me. It's like missing the point that, what, that you need to be in a certain position to influence, maybe try and influence a popular opinion and say something worthwhile whilst you're in that position. There was a lot of inconsistencies in what we did, of course. We weren't perfect. We didn't think that what we were doing, we were making it up as we went along. Uh, that's important to realize, really, because we got offered a support slot with Rolling Stones in Paris and we said we, we didn't want to do it, which does seem crazy. We got offered money by Nike, by Coca-Cola, by General Electric, loads of money for adverts, which we just couldn't justify doing because of what they were involved in at that particular time. But we did agree for the song to be used in Home Alone 3. You know, now I, now I say that now, that just seems absolutely ridiculous. I don't know why that happened, but that was just part of the inconsistencies of what we did. Anyway, yeah, so we got, we, we got to the Brits. It's uh, February 98. There we are at the Brits, uh, changing the words to tub thumping to be about uh, New Labour. It, it was still in the New Labour honeymoon period. New Labour had been elected the, f the previous May. We were there with a couple of striking dockers, which is really important to know. We were up for the best single of 97. If we had won the, the best single of 97, these two dockers were going to go up to get the award and be given an opportunity to say something about the strike that they were currently involved in up in Liverpool. Now, when we got there, we'd said that we weren't going to do anything stupid or do any, do, you know, do any pranks or anything. But then uh, the striking talkers who we were there with told us that John Prescott, who was there, used to be a member of their union. And when they had approached him to try and resolve the dispute, presuming that he would be on their side, he blanked them totally and wouldn't get involved. So they were sort of furious with him. So that sort of, uh, that sort of fueled things, really. Prescott's fury at his pop awards soaking. The Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott had strong words today for Dan but no bacon of the anarchist band Chumbawumba. The table had these big buckets which had had, like, wine and champagne in them. There was just ice cold water and I was just eyeing up where the bucket was and there was an empty chair just in front of him so I just grabbed it, stepped up on the chair onto the table and said this is for the Liverpool Dockers and threw it on him. Mr Prescott said the attack was contemptible, cowardly and terrifying. 
Right, so a lot of people didn't like what we did, we did, including people like Billy Bragg, who said, here's Prescott, probably the only working class guy in the cabinet, being soaked by some twit in a kilt, whose real name is Nigel. That's true, his real name is Nigel Dambert. Uh, Prescott is an easy target, but he had more right to be there than they did. I don't know why he had more right to be there than they did, Billy Bragg thinks he did, I don't know why. Um, Jarvis Cocker, who strangely had obviously done his, his bum-wiggling thing a year or two earlier. It's like them coming on stage with corporate whores on their shirts. I just thought, well, if you don't like it, do something else then, get another job. Which I think so. We I, again, I think I know. I know he's a national treasure and all that sort of stuff. I don't understand that quote at all. It's like saying if you work in a certain industry, you're not allowed to criticise that industry. You just have to accept it. Which I don't agree with at all. Anyway, one woman who was uh, who became a press darling throughout all this was Danbert's mum, Shirley. Now, what Shirley did, <laughs> bless her was that when the press all turned up on her doorstep the next day, she lives in this little semi-detached house in Burnley, when the press turned up on her doorstep the following morning, Shirley let them all in, made them all a cup of tea, and got out the photo albums. So basically, she was just like regaling them with stories of Dambert, like on holiday. You know, oh, he always did his homework and worked hard at school. But I was shocked when he came home once and had shaved off all his hair. When she, was, when she was told of his, like, his, his anarchist leanings and his desire to overturn the state, this was her response. Oh, yes. That's nice. So basically, because she'd invited him in, she was, she was telling him all stuff about, you know, their lovely holidays in Ilfracombe and that he was a prefect at school and he'd done his O-levels a year early. So she became, she became sort of the... She became an important part, integral to the, all the press stories. So you had stuff like this. What's, this is this is in the Times. <laughs> Mother says anarchist has explaining to do. I do like the name Dan, but when he is at home, he likes to be called Nigel. <laughs> so she sort of she sort of started to take over all the stories. How could my Nigel do it? Okay, this was also in the Daily Mirror. Ten things you ought to know about Chumbawamba. Okay, I'm doing this as a quiz, and we're gonna have to whiz through it. They start as a band called Chimbi's Banana. True or false? True. Chumbawamba is believed to be African dialect for the old name. True or false? False. They refused to appear in a martini advert with Sharon Stone because the company stopped them giving the proceeds to anarchist causes. False. It was some other ones. They've got it. They just, it's just stuff, lazy press stuff. Police raised a raided a Leeds house they once shared and arrested them on suspicion of terrorism. True. They fooled music journals by insisting their anti-royalist single Never Say Die was a tribute. True or false? True. Zany producer Jonathan King once unsuccessfully backed Chumbawamba to become Britain's Eurovision Song Contest entry. True or false? True. Yes, of course it's true. We all know that's true. He was obsessed with us being in the Eurovision Song Contest. And he, and he wanted us to do this song. It's this song called Ugh, Your Ugly Houses, which I'm... <laughs> Which is bizarre. It was like a, it was like it was it was in this song was inspired by an article in Hello magazine about uh, Sting and Trudy Styler's house. And this I'm going to play a brief extract.
basically, that's the gist of the whole song. That's as far as it goes. There's nothing clever about it at all. That's the, oh, well, it's clever in its simplicity, I suppose. He wanted that to be our Eurovision Song Contest entry. It's bizarre. Singer Aniston at once sparked fury by claiming the band like it when police get killed. True or false? True. They regularly enjoy a booze up at the Ford Green pub in Hare Hills, Leeds. Yay, true. And my favourite, they shop together at their local Tesco. False. Sorry about that. Netto's at the time, actually. It was when Netto's were big in Armley. Uh, we shot ourselves in the foot by bringing out the album, that, the follow-up album to Tub Thumper was an album called WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. Uh, pretty much Chumbawamba, the record label, the music industry. Uh, and basically this song, we just spent so much time in, in, in the United States, we just wrote this album that was a, a complete and utter damning critique of uh, US culture and uh, society. Uh, and so we were slagging off, here's a list of songs. She's Got All the Friends was an attack on Paris. Hilton, Ladies for Compassionate Lynching, an attack on Tipper Gore and her PMRC campaign, Jesus in Vegas, an attack on Christian morality, US TV networks and show business, Celebration Florida, an attack on a Disney design closed community, Moses with a gun, an attack on Charlton Heston and US gun laws, Smart Bomb, an attack on US bombing of Iraq using depleted uranium, Dumbing Down, an attack on the then New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani and his decision to stop funding to the Brooklyn Museum of Art because they were exhibiting Chrysophiles, the Holy Virgin Mary. That was our painting that you made out of elephant dung and they, they thought it was disgusting anyway so basically it's like an american artist coming over here having a hit album and then their follow-up album being a, a damning critique of our lovely country and and that's exactly what we did we went over to america released this album it absolutely bombed the record company were appalled we apparently held a world record for dip in sales from one album percentage dip from one album to the next um but we we battled on that would have been in about 2000 uh, chumbawamba carried on till about 2012 when we finally wrapped it up uh, it, it turned already turned into an acoustic outfit by then john prescott uh, a very prolific tweeter this is what he tweeted uh, when he heard about chumbawamba splitting up i might mark chumbawamba split by going out and buying their greatest hit album hashtag boom Hooray! when i met john prescott last year we didn't really chat about that i just got my photograph taken and i didn't tell him who i was um, <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was as you can see, he was totally wrecked. Anyway, you know, I was just like, "Oh, John, can I have a photo with you?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, all right, all right." It was at a Labour Party conference, actually. Um, if you ever want to find out, read an article by somebody who was neutral on this subject. This, ad this article on the Jacobin website called Chumbawamba's Long Voyage by Aaron Lake-Smith is a really good article, uh, and he sort of, he sort of gets Chumbawamba really. Uh, uh, really accurately, it's the best thing I've ever written, um, the best thing I've ever read about us. <laughs> <laughs> it is the best thing I've ever written. Anyway, this is what I said in the article. For so many bands of the peace punk era and so many radical punk bands today, politics is treated like a lifestyle, a diet, something to boycott, a badge to be worn. Chumbawamba stopped focusing on their diets and started focusing on political action. They broke out of the punk ghetto and became normal people. They brought their explicitly anarchist message onto morning television programs and interviews and talked and performed on amphitheater stages in front of hundreds of thousands of people. They were loud social anti-capitalists. Perhaps they instinctively understood what so many anarchists still don't understand today. Radicals need to become people rather than expecting people to become radicals.
Thank you ever so much, everybody, for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Dunstan Bruce there, talking about the meteoric rise and fall of, uh, of the band Chumbawamba. Were you a fan, Dave, back in the 80s, 90s? Well, weirdly... Um I wasn't until that hit, and I thought, oh, that's a catchy little earworm, you know, and it turns up everywhere on films and stuff. And, of course, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, like everyone else, the, the the fallout from that, the fact that they were so at odds with this, like, sort of remix of the Birdie song that they've written. Oh, I think, I, you, I think you do them a disservice. You, you, you're, you're making them sound like a, a kiddies band. I don't think they were a, they were a kiddies band. I, my, my surprise... Very popular with kids. You play that at a well, kid's that, party, they go nuts. But of course, but you could probably get them kids jumping up and down to Blur's song too for, for similar reasons, though. But, but I know you probably I know. could. Um, I, I was just surprised at, at what a lovely bloke Dunstan, Very Dunstan nice is. Guy. Very and, nice and guy. And that's, you know, I suppose with, you know, you've got a band like Sleaford Mods who are kicking around at present and what seem to be two quite, quite angry, sort of chipper, taxi driver sort of blokes. And maybe they are. Maybe they're ter- terribly sweet lovely chaps but um but i probably wouldn't want to go for a drink with them what's interesting for me is that they were obviously very sincere that no band hangs around as a collective for 20 odd years uh, on the off chance they're going to write a pop hit uh, and i've heard some of their other stuff since and it's i, I rather like it things like i wouldn't uh, piss on you if you were on fire again quite a catchy tune less My suitable for kids parties yeah. yeah but the idea that you set up an anarchist collective to form a, a, a pop or rock group as an agent of change seems so ridiculous now. I, OK, it was ridiculous at the time, but it's even more ridiculous now. You know, where has that rebellion gone? Where where do young people go to rebel? Because it's not, in America and Britain at least, it seems, in the mass market popular music. So where is it? Is it, is it the internet? Is it Are people... I mean, I know there are some quite quite big movements, uh, like the Unmonastery movement, where it's all about <coughs> subverting how we live, getting a sort of collective together, holding coding sessions for local kids, interacting, having a kind of irreligious but monastic ethos so that people can live together. And that's quite an interesting and quite big developing movement in Spain and other places like that where young people are finding it hard to, to, to get places to live and things like that. There is there is rebellion out there and there is, there is mm. sort of genuine search for expression of anger, but they have so many more tools available now that playing in the, the kind of controlled sandpit of popular music seems like a bit of a waste of time now. Is that fair to say? To be honest, I don't know. I don't know. I, I <laughs> Dave, was, I you're mean, imagine, useless. Well, I, I, I can't have an opinion on everything. Uh, I, I imagine if Billy Bragg was sitting here, he'd be he'd be seething. And Billy and, Bragg's and say, about fifty five. Well, no, 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 well, no, no. But age is is not. Uh, I mean, I know what you're saying. You're, you're saying that there are there don't seem to be new bands that are coming up. But yeah. but I think there are people who still um, think it's important to be to be to be the voice of dissent. But but yes, I suppose what what, yeah, what you're talking is about that is that voice is, music. Is that voice rock and roll or pop music or something? Well, I think you're right. Thereof. I think it is, but I, I don't know what it is. I don't have an answer to to be able to say. I think it's now moved into this arena because I don't see it in TV. I don't see it in film. I don't see it art. I don't see it in literature. I see it a lot on YouTube. My goodness, if you want subversion and madness. There's acres of it on YouTube. You <laughs> and know. you watch it, don't oh, you? Oh, crikey. You know, <laughs> you can watch two or three hours every night and not even touch the surface. It's everywhere. I mean, a lot of it is wrong-thinking nuttiness. And you just think, well, are we sat here being boring old blokes going, oh, isn't it a shame, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no sort of rebellion in rock and roll? Or is that a bit like asking for, there's no new uh, bossa nova tunes anymore? It's a shame, isn't it? You know, are, are we in that position? Well, is it structurally dead? The only thing we can do to 
to be part of the change is to set up a competition. You're, no, it's to set up an anarchist collective pop group. Yeah, well, that's our competition. So our competition this week should be to yes. challenge the listeners, because we're too old to do it, but yeah. to challenge our younger listener, yes. listeners, sorry, <laughs> to challenge our younger listeners to, to set Jimmy. up yeah. um, an anarcho-syndicalist pop band collective, collective yeah. that will um, step out... Uh, into the pop arena and challenge and probably bring down yeah. Cowell and, and and his like and have a number one hit with 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 a fantastic anthem that 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 sends shockwaves across the Throughout world. Throughout kids parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So world. that would that's our challenge for the competition. What what's the prize? The prize is a week on safari lion hunting in South Africa. Oh, I'm tempted. <laughs> Me I too. I am tempted. Me too. Uh, Sending your eight-track cartridges with with recordings of your number one global <laughs> hit, and if we like it, then that lion hunting safari is as good as yours. Is yours? You too will have your photo next to a dead lion on Facebook. We'll see you in two weeks' time. No, we won't. We will. We will listen from you. We will. You will be listening. <laughs> you will hear. You will be hearing from us. In two weeks' time, you will hear more from this podcast. Poor old Dave. He's gone completely insane. <laughs> oh. <laughs> The Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Mayling. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com, where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the Auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes. <laughs>